Good day to all my fellow 101 podcast uh, history listeners. Uh, hard to believe that July 4th is just around the corner. And what a coincidence, what a coincidence it's been that during this whole entire time, we've been talking about the book, otherwise known as Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence by Denise Kiernan and Joseph D. Agnes. I believe that the authors right now would be very happy to know that someone out there, like myself, is talking to their audience about this book. And I have no doubts that when it was first published and sold, that a lot of uh, copies were sold in general. I hope that there are plenty of people out there who are still eager to learn about the signers, not just the famous ones like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, not that they aren't worth learning about, but we've covered a lot of ground about many of these other signers, uh, like Josiah Bartlett of New Hampshire, Benjamin Rush of Pennsylvania, Abraham Clark of New Jersey, uh, to Benjamin Harrison of Virginia, Charles Carroll of Maryland. The list goes on and on, but the bottom line is, is that for all the other signers that have been talked about, they have had a, an important story to tell because they too did more than just sign a, an important document. They were working behind the scenes on various committees in which they um, specialized in um, a trade or two that helped um, get that final uh, passage approved. Um, So the bottom line is everybody has a story to tell. It's not just I, me, myself. It's us, we, ourselves. Think about it. If we all come together, we will work it out as one. If not, then, as like Benjamin Franklin said, we shall all hang separately. So um, we are back uh, on the air today with the 11th of the 13 colonies being North Carolina. Um, My wife is originally from North Carolina. She uh, was born in Rocky Mount, but then um, spent most of her years in North Carolina until she was about the age of 11 in Raleigh. And then she moved uh, to Virginia uh, about 30 years ago. Now, her father is originally from Durham. And as for my mother-in-law, well, she's originally from Virginia, but lived in Wilson for a good period of time. So it is safe to say that um, my wife's family um, has a lot of, um, what do you call it, heritage in North Carolina. And what do you know? My wife's brother lives in Winston-Salem. So um, North Carolina people are very good people, to say the least. Well, uh, what do we know about North Carolina in terms of its history, or should I say right before uh, Europeans um, start uh, beginning to explore uh, the North Carolina that we know today? Well, it was first inhabited by Mississippian and woodland-cultured Native American peoples. Okay. Well, by 1550, there are Indian groups or tribes living in present-day North Carolina. These tribes range from the Roanoke, the Pamlico, Waxhaw, Wacoma, Catawba, just to name a few. Uh, Waxhaw I find interesting because there is a place in North Carolina. It's actually located right on the North Carolina-South Carolina line known as Waxhaw. And what's interesting, of course, I don't want to get too far ahead of the game, but it should be worthy to point out that a future president was born in Waxhaw. His name was Andrew Jackson. 
And there was a battle, or should I say an American Revolutionary War battle. Um, I don't believe it was right in Waxhaw, but there was a rally cry that, was, uh, res that came about in the horrific aftermath of the battle. Uh, long story short, um, a uh, patriot um, commander named Abraham Bolden led a group of, um, oh, fewer than a thousand men who went up against um, Bannister Tarleton's uh, Dragoon forces. Of course, Bannister Tarleton was known as Bloody Ban in large part because of his ruthless tactics and how he treated the opposition. Uh, for example, if a soldier put up his hands in distress to say, I'm surrendering, what did Tarleton do? He would take his sword and literally cut off the opposition's arm. That's how cruel and savage and um, horrific of a man he was, and that's why it's safe to say he earned the nickname Bloody Ban. Well, long story short, the Waxhaw uh, battle was uh, an ugly um, episode for the uh, Continental Army. So in the aftermath of the battle, the rally cry became, Remember the Waxhaws. As for Catawba, that's another interesting name because there is a college outside of uh, Charlotte uh, known, or should I say in Salisbury, North Carolina, known as Catawba College. So uh, back to our main focal point here, the first European explorations that took place in present-day North Carolina were between 1566 and 1567 by the Spanish, and then from 1583 to 1584 by the English. Who is North Carolina, or should I say, what king of England would North Carolina have been named in honor of? That answer is King Charles I of England, who first established this English colony. I learned something interesting uh, that has to do with Latin. Of course, I took two years of Latin in high school, but the word carolus, not um, careless, but carolus, being spelled C-A-R-O-L-U-S. It is Latin for Charles. Well, North Carolina was established as a royal colony in 1729. However, it was primarily settled first by farmers. And, and during these early years of uh, the farmers uh, settling the colony, there were no cities or towns in the early years. Now, how many capitals were there in North Carolina, or should I say state capitals were there, before Raleigh became the capital that we know of today? The answer is three. The first official state capital of North Carolina was in 1722 in a place called Edenton, and that was the capital for just around 45 years, but by 1766, New Bern became the capital, and New Bern is located uh, somewhere uh, on the outskirts of Wilson, probably not too far from like Moorhead City or uh, Havelock, or should I say even closer to Emerald Isle. Now, um, we go to 1767, and the construction of a governor's palace is being built, known as Tryon Palace. It's named after William Tryon, T-R-Y-O-N, and he was the provincial governor, and Tryon Palace was the head of the North Carolina government from 1767 right up until 1788. And there still is a place in North Carolina known as Tryon. Well, before the capital becomes um, 
officially known as Raleigh, um, what, uh, what do you call it, non-Native uh, American people are living in terms of Europeans are occupying North Carolina. You've got really uh, four groups, uh, Scots-Irish, Quaker, English, and German. That's a, a good uh, diversity group. Well, in 1788, Raleigh becomes the capital. Why did Raleigh become the capital? Well, Raleigh is an essential location in the state of North Carolina. As a matter of fact, in today's time, think of that uh, area known as the Research Triangle or what's known as the Triangle. You have Raleigh, you've got Durham, and you've got Chapel Hill. And what's even better in today's time, Raleigh, home to NC State, Durham, Duke University, and Chapel Hill being home to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. But Raleigh itself uh, offered better protection from coastal attacks. In other words, like Tryon and Edenton and um, Newburn, as, as good of a places as they might have been for their time, there wasn't a whole lot of protection to um, keep people safe, um, especially in the time when uh, pirate attacks were very common off the North Carolina coast, most notably by that infamous pirate named Blackbeard, uh, whose real name was Edward Teach. But, um, but Blackbeard himself was known for uh, creating lots of havoc up and down the Carolina coast. How ironic that I have a friend of mine who I've known for a number of years. Uh, his last name is Teachy, and I remember him telling me uh, about 15 years ago, at least it was, that um, his, grand, his late grandfather, um, had, he had told me that his grandfather had done uh, research, or should I say genealogical research, on his uh, family's uh, history being on the Teachy side. And for years they thought uh, that there was a connection with Blackbeard, given that uh, his real name was Edward Teach. It turns out that after uh, doing extensive, extensive genealogical research, per what my friend told me, their family was not related to Blackbeard after all. I don't know if that was a good thing or not, but, uh, but nonetheless, it was certainly worth trying. But um, what I also found interesting about North Carolina was that uh, from 1740 up until 1780, the population quadrupled from, from 52,000 originally in 1740 to 270,000 by 1780. Where are these people coming from? Are they all coming from abroad in Europe? No. Actually, the answer is uh, that they're coming from three other colonies, as far north as Pennsylvania, then from Maryland, and just north being Virginia. Now, uh, not to get ahead of the game, but what I find interesting about North Carolina, too, is that the colony itself was the smallest, it made the smallest per capita contribution to the Revolutionary War of all 13 colonies. Only 7,800 men joined the Continental Army under General Washington, whereas an extra 10,000 served under leaders like General Nathaniel Greene. That's interesting considering just by the time 1780 comes around, there's about 270,000 people living in the colony, 
And by um, 1779, the, that war, should I say that, um, the American Revolutionary War, starts to shift its focus to the south. And yes, there were battles in North Carolina, most notably Kings Mountain, which, which is outside of Charlotte, uh, Guilford Courthouse uh, outside of Greensboro, and there were um, perhaps other uh, skirmishes, or should I say, including that Battle of the Waxhaws, given it was right on the North-South Carolina line. Well, how many men from North Carolina signed the Declaration of Independence? The number is between uh, two and four. The answer is three. Who are these three men? Joseph Hughes, William Hooper, John Penn. True or false, were all three signers from North Carolina born in North Carolina? Believe it or not, that answer is false. I was very surprised to learn of that when first reading this book last year, that none of the three signers um, from North Carolina actually originally were born in the state. Well, uh, how, many are we gonna, how many of the signers are we going to talk about? I found uh, that of all three of them, there were two that really struck out as um, being extremely uh, worthy of uh, discussing. Those two are going to be John Penn and Mr. Joseph Hughes. John Penn is our first uh, signer we'll talk about. He was born outside of Fredericksburg, Virginia in 1740, and Fredericksburg, um, in proximity to where my wife and I live, is north of us. Uh, it's probably about an hour to an hour and a half, give or take, with uh, traffic and all. But nonetheless, Mr. Penn was born outside of Fredericksburg in 1740. His father was a farmer, and his mother was the daughter of a country judge. This family was well off, but Mr. Penn's father wasn't big on book learning. I find that odd given the fact that he's a farmer, and I would think that farmers of all people would need to rely on books, especially when it comes to knowing how to plant crops, perhaps uh, books that would help um, give some indication of what it might mean to manage your land, you know, books in general, you know. So as for Mr. Penn, or should I say for Mr. young John Penn, he really received only two to three years of education. So by the time he reaches the age of 18, he's really at a bad disadvantage. What does John Penn do that pretty much um, changes his life forever in all the right ways? Well, at age 18, he turns to a cousin who is a lawyer, and he is in a lot of, and he's in need of help. Well, his cousin does him all the great favors in the world. He allows his young John Penn to borrow books left and right from the library. In a span of three years, John Penn teaches himself how to read and write, and he becomes a lawyer, and by age 21, he is admitted to the bar. What an incredible turnaround in a three-year span that would take I don't know, it would take many people in today's time longer than three years, to say the least. But this was an incredible turnaround. He practiced law in Virginia for almost a decade before moving to North Carolina. 
By the time he arrives to Philadelphia in 1775, or I say once he has established himself there, he is perceived by other um, delegates or uh, representatives, especially from the First and Second Continental Congresses, he is perceived by many as being a good-humored man. However, when it came time to being in the courtroom, he was seen as a forceful orator or orator. I think it's good to have um, two sides of you. It's it, you know nothing wrong with being good-humored, but when it comes to taking care of the stuff that's serious, you do have to be a little bit more forceful as long as you're not hurting people's feelings or, should I say, threatening someone in a way that's not necessary. But it's good to be a forceful orator. After all, John Adams was a forceful orator himself. Well, Mr. Penn served in Congress until 1780, and he would go on to become one of 16 signers who signed the Articles of Confederation. He also worked on the North Carolina War Board and helped organize the region's defense, given that General Charles Cornwallis and his troops were marching north from South Carolina to Virginia. He retired from politics in 1781 for health reasons. He sadly died at the age of 48. He is at the age of 48, I should say, in 1788. So if there's any good news that might have come out of this was that Mr. Penn was alive to see uh, the Constitution be signed. But he didn't live long enough to see George Washington become our nation's first president. He is buried at the Guilford Courthouse Military Park in Greensboro. Despite having lived to the age of 48, he can be best remembered as the signer who taught himself how to read and write. If he had not um, made the, what do you call it, um, the important connection with his cousin when he had, it may not be safe to say that Mr. Penn would have um, earned the fame that he did. Not just through the connection of a cousin, but for what his cousin did in return. It's nice to know that there was family, extended family looking after Mr. Penn. The second signer is uh, Joseph Hughes. He was born in 1730, two years before George Washington was born and five, and five years before John Adams. But he was born in 1730 and grew up on an estate outside Princeton, New Jersey. And what do you know, Mr. Hughes be becomes a Princeton graduate. After his college days, he becomes apprenticed to a Philadelphia merchant. And what do you know, by the time he's 30 years of age, being in 1760, he moves south to Edenton, North Carolina, which is a bustling seaport on the Albemarle Sound. What do you know, in 1760, we're still um, involved in that French and Indian War, but what else is unique about 1760? It's the same year that King George III becomes officially coronated as the new King of England. And as I mentioned from a previous podcast when talking about the Massachusetts signers, which of, our, um, which of the signers, he was the only one who actually saw King George III be coronated? John Hancock. Well, does Mr. Hughes have family in North Carolina? Yes, he does. He works with a nephew in the shipping import and export businesses. 
and by 1766 he becomes involved with the North Carolina Provincial Assembly and becomes an advocate for rights and freedom for all the colonies. But here's a double-edged sword right here. While Mr. Hughes is an advocate for freedom and for um, individual rights, he remains hesitant on full separation from England. It's safe to say that he could be up there in the same boat as uh, Carter Braxton, who, um, who I discussed yesterday about how he was all for people having essential rights but yet, when it came to actually declaring your separation from England, how were you going to defend yourself against the mightiest uh, military force in the world? I think it's safe to say Mr. Hughes is in that boat as well. Well, the bigger question is, how is Mr. Hughes going to be persuaded um, to say that, hey, it's time to separate once and for all from England? Well, step number one, he's elected to the First Continental Congress in 1774, and he's on the committee which draws up the Declaration of, of Rights of the Colonies. He also helped develop Congress's plan for non-importation, or should I say a boycott of all British goods coming into colonial America. And that non-importation is very essential because here we are, here we are uh, wanting to um, seriously consider uh, separating from England. So when you separate from a country like England, are you going to want any goods coming in? No. But here's the biggest drawback, and I, and I remind myself of this all the time when visiting Colonial Williamsburg. Prior to uh, the 1760s, all of the 13 colonies are on very good relations with the mother country. So if you're on good relations, you can always expect to have good quality um, products be delivered, um, or should I say brought over to the New World from England. What are some of those products? Fine leather, uh, or just leather in general for shoes. I, I take leather, for example, because right after we um, have officially declared our separation from England, do you think the chances are that any of the 13 colonies are going to receive quality leather anymore? The answer is no. They're going to have to find ways to make leather themselves. Individuals, that is. The thing is, is that the resources are greater in England. Why? Because you have a higher population and think about it, the higher population you have in the towns and cities, the greater the demand is to have multiple shops to make a certain type of good. Now, you take Williamsburg, Virginia. On average, Williamsburg has probably about 1,500 people living. That all changes when the General Assembly is in session twice a year. That population could double to 3,000, which is great especially for um, extra um, income revenue for those in the various trade professions. But remember, though, by the time uh, war breaks out, um, the demand for anything coming from Europe, or should I say from England, into the New World is pretty much off limits. So basically, um, we, have made, we have made necessary sacrifices, but the problem also, too, is that we're not going to be getting the same kind of quality goods as we were accustomed to. So that, um, that is in part 
because of the non-importation. Well, um, as I said earlier, what made what is going to make Joseph Hughes change his mind in breaking away from England? He listens to an impassioned speech by John Adams. Well, John Adams was quite the talker, and John Adams could give any kind of impassioned speech on any topic. Well, it just so happens to be about independence, and because of John Adams' speech, Joseph Hughes decides to change his mind and join um, the rest of the crowd. I should also note that um, Joseph Hughes was one of two signers who were bachelors for life. Who was that other signer? Caesar Rodney of Delaware. What other accomplishments did Joseph Hughes uh, make? He served on a Marine Committee and he also went about helping to establish the Continental Navy. He helped appoint a dear friend of his, none other than Mr. John Paul Jones, as an officer who became one of our most celebrated naval heroes during the Revolutionary War. Joseph Hughes worked tirelessly. He worked himself to death to where he was working 12-hour days. But then again, you know, most families who lived on farms probably were working 12-hour days. You got up very early in the morning and worked until perhaps it was no longer broad daylight. However, Mr. Hughes worked himself to death to the point where it might have been responsible for causing his untimely death at age 49 in 1779. And it's unfortunate to know that he did not live to see um, our um, country um, win its um, independence on the battlefield, especially when the British surrendered at Yorktown. But his funeral was attended by Congress in Philadelphia, and that is where he is buried to this day. Despite having lived to be just 49 years of age, he can still be remembered as the signer who worked himself to death. And on a sad note, um, none of the uh, three signers from North Carolina made it past the age of 50, or, or should I say didn't even live to be 50 years old. But if you think about it, for Joseph Hughes living to be 49 and William Hooper to be 48, or not, not William Hooper, but uh, John Penn, who lived to be 48, that was considered old age for its time. But nonetheless, they didn't. None of them made it. Made it to the age of fifty. But had it not been for Joseph Hughes's um, work, especially in um, maritime or uh, should I say uh, the shipping industry, if it weren't for his leadership there, I'm not sure who would have gone about being able to have established the Continental Navy. But he sure did lay the building um, blocks for our Continental Navy, especially in regards to appointing his friend John Paul Jones, who um, truly was the father of our American Navy. Well, that is all for now, and I look forward to another podcast uh, session here soon. Thank you again f to all my fellow listeners who have, who have been listening left and right. We do have a lot to celebrate, even in this time of uncertainty that we're facing with coronavirus. And please know that freedom is not free. Please know not to take freedom for granted. Please know that, um, that while, yes, none of our forefathers were perfect, 
please remember that they um, made so many sacrifices to make our country a better place, not just for their time, but, f- but for future generations. We are the future. Only we have the power to make uh, this country great, not just in the present, but in the future. Please don't uh, forget what our forefathers did, because they are being forgotten. And we can't, we can't, um, how do you say it? We can't um, undo what might, might have happened in the past that's not pleasant, because there, there is uh, history out there that's not pleasant. We can learn from it. We can learn not to make the same mistakes But what we must remember is that even our forefathers weren't 100% perfect. But when it came to doing the um, unimaginable, meaning to separate from England, not just talk about it, but actually do it by means of the Declaration of Independence, we must remember that they put aside everything. And for one shining moment, all of them came together, north, middle, and south, to do the most courageous thing that the world had seen up until that point, and that was to separate from the mightiest empire in the world. Please let freedom ring wherever you may be. Take care for now.